Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. Focus on Diabetes is brought to you by Sanofi Aventis, the maker of Lantus Solostar, and your 360-degree partner in diabetes care. Diabetics spend an average of five days per year in the hospital. How current are you on recognition and treatment? Welcome to a special segment focusing on diabetes on ReachMD.com XM160. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rita Sadulka from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Sadulka is a professor and vice chair, Department of Emergency Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She is also a co-author on the chapter on diabetes in Rosen's Emergency Medicine, Concepts and Clinical Practice, 6th edition. Today we're discussing management and treatment of hypo and hyperglycemia. Welcome, Dr. Sadelka. Thanks for having me. So what do some of the, maybe all practitioners listening to this show, need to know about the prevalence of diabetes? I think the key is that the prevalence of diabetes is about 7% in the adult population. The other important thing to know is that diabetes is increasing among Americans due to our obesity epidemic. We're seeing more and more young adults, children, and middle-aged adults who are being diagnosed with diabetes every single day. So in this age of obesity, it's probably truly on the rise in children. Very much so. I can tell you that in my earlier days of practice, I almost never saw any type 2 diabetes in a child, and now we see it every single day. Let's talk about presentations. How might hypoglycemia present? Maybe some things we haven't thought about. Well, there's two things to think about when you see somebody with hypoglycemia. It's really important to think about why they're symptomatic. The first reason really is that they're not getting enough sugar or substrate into their brain. And so that accounts for the confusion, the mental status changes, sometimes the seizures or the comatose presentations that we see. The other reason that people are symptomatic is they have a huge epinephrine release in response to the hypoglycemia. And that accounts for the other symptoms that we commonly see, the palpitations, the nervousness, the sweatiness, the tachycardia, the dizziness, the irritability, the shaking. Some people complain of weakness, fatigue. Again, all because of this epinephrine surge. Is it often underdiagnosed or not diagnosed quickly enough? I think that it's sometimes not diagnosed quickly enough because people don't come in always with very obvious symptoms. Those patients that come in and say, I think I'm hypoglycemic or they're known diabetics, we think of it. But when we when we don't know, we're not always so quick to check a sugar on patients. What are some of the precipitating factors in hypoglycemia that ED and even primary care docs listening to this show might need to be aware of? I'm thinking of medication interactions or, or what else? Well, I think not only medication interactions, but just medications. So many of the medications that we prescribe these days cause hypoglycemia. Some, many of the for example, Haldol does, some of the pain medications, some of the medications we use to treat HIV. I would highly recommend that practicing physicians 
keep a list of these medications either in their pocket or on their palm pilot or whatever electronic device they use because the list is just too long to think of. And aren't some practitioners prescribing these agents for often women who want to lose weight and they don't have a diabetic history? They come into an ER and may not be looked for. That's exactly right. And that's that's an excellent point because that's something as that we as emergency physicians need to think about what medications is the patient on, A, that they're not telling us, or B, that we don't even know are causing hypoglycemia. What about treatment? Do clinicians often overshoot? That's an excellent question. The interesting point about treating hypoglycemia is that the response to glucose is really unpredictable. There's a lot of data that shows that the response to our standard treatment, an amp or so of D50W, can raise your blood sugar anywhere from 40 to 400. So do we overshoot? Sometimes, and sometimes we undershoot. The, the real key is that we need to administer the glucose, either IV or orally, and then follow it with a meal. And then if we don't understand the underlying etiology of the hypoglycemia, it's really incumbent upon us to figure it out or to admit the patient to determine the cause. Do you have any case stories to share with us of patients that might have been hypoglycemic that presented in an unexpected fashion? One very unusual one that had a very unfortunate ending was a 19-year-old woman who came into an emergency department originally with pneumonia and some hypoglycemia. She was treated and really did fine for a couple of years. And then she came back a couple of years later. Her mom found her wandering around the apartment confused and called AMS. Her sugar in the ambulance was uh, 40. They gave her an amp of D50 and took her to the emergency department. In the emergency department, they gave her another amp of D50, and her mental status seemed to resolve. At that time, they arranged an appointment with their medical specialist to have her followed up, which unfortunately she never kept. About four months later, she came to the emergency department again because of the exact same story. Her mom found her wandering around the apartment, very confused first thing in the morning. And again, she was treated in the emergency department and released. Interestingly, at that time, she had reported that her appetite hadn't been so good and that she'd lost about 30 pounds. A couple months later, the same thing happened. Woke up in the morning, was confused, mom called EMS, she was treated in the ambulance, treated in the emergency department, and released. This happened again a few days later and a few days later, and then finally she was taken to another emergency department where they said, wow, we have a young woman who's having repeated episodes of hypoglycemia, we don't know why, and they admitted her to the hospital and to figure out why, and unfortunately, uh, she actually had a cardiac arrest during her hospital stay, and they weren't able to resuscitate her. And her final diagnosis at autopsy was Addison's disease. She had hypoadrenal problems, which really, I think, emphasizes to me, and I hope to all emergency physicians and primary care physicians, that if you have somebody with hypoglycemia and you don't really have a reason, you know, if it's not a medication interaction or a hypoglycemic agent that they're taking or a change in their eating or exercise patterns that you really do need to figure out why because there are multiple life-threatening causes of hypoglycemia. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to a special segment focusing on diabetes on Reach MDXM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Rita Sedelka from Case Western Reserve University, and we're discussing case management of hypo and hyperglycemia. So what is your initial approach to hyperglycemia, say, in someone who presents with new onset? And has that approach changed throughout the years? It has. Over the years, I've seen the development of many, many great oral agents and many new options of treatment. So I would say when we first see somebody in the emergency department with new onset hyperglycemia, we have to decide, is this new onset of type 1 diabetes or new onset of type 2 diabetes? If it's somebody with new onset of type 1 diabetes and they present with diabetic ketoacidosis, for example, our treatment option is very straightforward. In that case, we replace their insulin replace their fluid losses, we replace their electrolyte losses, we correct their acid-base balances, and we try and determine what tipped them over the edge. In other words, what was the underlying etiology of this event? And those patients, for the most part, especially if it's new-onset diabetes with ketoacidosis, those patients need to be admitted into the hospital. If we have a patient with new-onset type 2 diabetes, particularly in our obese patients, we have a very different approach. In the emergency department, we try to lower their blood sugar with fluids and with insulin, and then we try and provide an educational program for them with our diabetic educators. That's kind of what I was going to get at. It used to be kind of an adage that if it was new-onset diabetes, you would admit them, quote, for teaching. And now with insurance issues and DRGs and funding, and gosh, you know, why are you admitting them? Their sugar's not that high. You've got them controlled. How do you handle the teaching? Our approach to new diabetics is a very difficult one. They present a very difficult problem. In the old days, we used to admit all these patients to the hospital. We would begin their regimens. We would teach them how to take their medications, how to check their sugars, if they were going to be using insulin, how to use their insulin. These days, we're really not able to admit all these patients. We have a several-pronged approach. The first approach is we try and prescribe them their initial oral hypoglycemic agent in the emergency department and educate them as best we can as to how to use those and set them up with an outpatient appointment with a diabetic educator. The other approach that we use is we, again, hydrate them in the emergency department, administer insulin, and then admit them to our observation area where our nursing staff can spend some time talking with them about their disease process and, again, get them started on oral hypoglycemic agents with very close follow-up with a diabetic educator. Unfortunately, the economy being what it is and our healthcare system being what it is, many of these folks aren't able to get into any system. We do our best. We try to prescribe them metformin because we have that available as a $4 medication at many of our pharmacies. We talk to them about diet control. We talk to them about exercise, and we cross our fingers and hope for the best. The unfortunate news about that is they bounce back all the time, and it's a lose-lose. The patients eventually succumb to the side effects of diabetes, and they spend a lot of time and a lot of, use a lot of resources 
when, in fact, if our health care system provided the proper care for them, they would be able to manage their lives quite effectively. So, right. So, if your facility and other county hospitals could provide probably a lot less money for education for these patients and have a way to have them have some teaching, you could, of course, just stop one small revolving door on that larger revolving door that you see in a county ER. Exactly. And I have to say that I'm really quite proud of our hospital because we've recognized this and we are in the process of instituting a medical home program that will provide just such teaching and care for patients with not just diabetes, but other chronic illnesses as well. So I think that we are very keenly aware of the issue and and working very, very hard to take care of it. We're almost out of time, but could you try to give us one more example of a a case study where somebody presented with um, hyperglycemia and maybe had a different approach or a different outcome? Yeah. Recently, we had a 72-year-old gentleman who had a history of pancreatic cancer come in with a new-onset right hemiparesis. Because we're a stroke center, we, of course, got our stroke team involved and quickly got him into the CAT scanner because we thought he might be a candidate for uh, TPA. In fact, his CAT scan came back okay before his glucose came back, and it turned out that his glucose was over 1,200. So he was a pretty classic example of patients who have a non-ketotic hyperosmolar coma who present with neurologic symptoms. And I I think that's really a a key for practitioners to remember that patients who come in with non-ketotic hyperosmolar coma not uncommonly come in with neurologic complaints and can be misdiagnosed as having a stroke if we don't quickly check their sugar and see that that's what's causing the problem. Thank you, Dr. Sadalka. You've really shared a lot with us today, and we appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're giving our thanks today to Dr. Rita Sadalka from Case Western Reserve University, who's been our guest. We've been discussing the management of hypo and hyperglycemia in its varying manifestations. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special series focusing on diabetes on ReachMD.com on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes, brought to you by Sanofi Aventis, the maker of Lantus Solo Star, and your 360-degree partner in diabetes care. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Hi, I'm here to pick up my car from the shop. Uh, How does everything look? Well, you need to be careful driving around on a tire like that. Oh, wow. It does seem to be wearing out. I hadn't noticed. I'm glad I brought it in. A tire is something we take for granted until it's wearing out. Just like the pancreas. According to the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, up to 50% of beta cell function may be lost by the time a patient is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and it may continue to decline on average by about 5% annually. For patients with type 2 diabetes whose blood glucose is not well controlled with orals alone, insulin may help make a difference. 
Insulin is an effective medication for lowering blood glucose levels, and it works as part of an overall treatment plan that includes diet, exercise, and other diabetes medications. So consider prescribing insulin for your appropriate patients to help lower blood glucose. Learn more at RethinkInsulin.com. This message is brought to you by Sanofi Aventis, the maker of Atlantis Solostar and your 360-degree partner in diabetes care. Important safety information for Lantus. Insulin Glargine RDNA origin injection. Contraindications. Lantus is contraindicated in patients hypersensitive to insulin glargine or one of its excipients. Warnings and precautions. Monitor blood glucose in all patients treated with insulin. Insulin regimen should be modified cautiously and only under medical supervision. Changes in insulin strength, manufacturer, type, or method of administration may result in the need for a change in insulin dose or an adjustment in concomitant oral anti-diabetic treatment. Do not dilute or mix Lantus with any other insulin or solution. If mixed or diluted, the solution may become cloudy and the onset of action and or time to peak effect may be altered in an unpredictable manner. Do not administer Lantus via an insulin pump or intravenously because severe hypoglycemia can occur. Insulin devices and needles must not be shared between patients. Hypoglycemia is the most common adverse reaction of insulin therapy, including Lantus, and may be life-threatening. Severe life-threatening, generalized allergy, including anaphylaxis, can occur. A reduction in the Lantus dose may be required in patients with renal or hepatic impairment. Drug interactions. Certain drugs may affect glucose metabolism requiring insulin dose adjustment and close monitoring of blood glucose. The signs of hypoglycemia may be reduced in patients taking anti-adrenergic drugs, for example, beta blockers clonidine, guanethidine, and reserpine. Adverse reactions. Other adverse reactions commonly associated with Lantus are injection site reaction, lipodystrophy, pruritus, and rash. Indications and usage for Lantus. Lantus is a long-acting insulin analog indicated to improve glycemic control in adults and children 6 years and older with type 1 diabetes mellitus and in adults with type 2 diabetes mellitus. Lantus should be administered once a day at the same time every day. Important limitations of use. Lantus is not recommended for the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. Use intravenous short-acting insulin instead. Lantus Solostar is a disposable pre-filled insulin pen.